Well, I absolutely love Christmas. In particular, I love the sights and sounds of Christmas. I look forward to them every year in eager anticipation. But that anticipation starts way back in the fall. I mean, if you just think about the different seasons, you realize God put all these things in place for us to recognize and for us to anticipate the coming of Christmas, including the time of year when we celebrate the babe born in a manger, born a child, and yet a king. So first marker, anticipating the coming of Christmas, starts with the leaves changing colors and the colder nights. Then, of course, you hit Thanksgiving. I mean, there's an obvious marker, don't you think? You know what boggles my mind is that box stores don't even put out decorations for Thanksgiving anymore. Instead, it's just the time to put out the Christmas stuff. So at Thanksgiving, we anticipate Christmas, trees, lights, decorations, wrapping paper. Then, of course, there's the national holiday of Black Friday. Do you know American shoppers spent a record $9.12 billion online? That most of those purchases happen from a mobile phone? It's crazy. Yet that's the world in which we live. All these things, for me, mark a growing anticipation for Christmas Day. Because what is everyone buying? They're buying presents, right? So they're doing everything they can do to buy the best gifts at the best prices to give away to loved ones. So their gifts anticipate Christmas. So the season anticipates Christmas. The shopping anticipates Christmas. The gifts anticipate Christmas. And then my favorite, the lights anticipate Christmas. Now, some of you know I absolutely love my neighbor, Stan, because every single Thanksgiving weekend, he's outside with his two kids putting up Christmas decoration, and Stan and his kids have everything. They've got normal lights around his trees. They've got a spotlight on his fence. They got light bulbs that plug into the ground. They've got inflatable Star Wars figures. He's got a big, massive, inflatable Santa Claus that sits on his balcony. He's got a Mickey and a Minnie Mouse. Minnie Mouse is in an inflatable airplane. He's got action figures. He's got wreaths on his windows, and he's got an arch over his driveway. It is seriously a winter wonderland. So folks drive by our house, slow down, and park just to look at his lights, In fact, many of you drive by and then you make comments on how our house doesn't quite match up to Stan's house, as if we don't know that already. But I love Stan, and I love his lights, because it's just another marker that Christmas is coming. And oh, how I love the candles in the windows, windows, especially in New England homes, by far my favorite. But it's all just an eager anticipation that Christmas is coming. But you know what? As I think about all those things that happen, and they happen each and every year to mark with glorious anticipation the coming of Christmas, I am blown away to think about all the markers that God has put in place literally throughout thousands of years in order to anticipate the coming of Christ. So the people of God might be waiting in eager anticipation for his arrival and not only marking his coming, 
but telling us exactly what he'll be like. This lowly babe, born in a manger, born a child, and yet a king. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So this morning, we're going to take a quick survey of the Old Testament to see these markers, to see these signs, and to better understand exactly what the King of Kings, this Messiah, will be like, so that we too might have eager anticipation for the coming, second coming of Christ. Because as we'll see, this Jesus really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But first, let's start with number one, the arrival of the King. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me. To Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, it's on page 807. If you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Also have the outline, festive green, in your bulletins. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David the son of Abraham. How did that work? Well, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Ray. By Rahab and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now that's interesting, isn't it? David, the king. If you just look at the second point of your outline, you'll see listed there under anticipation of a king Abraham, Judah, Boaz, and David. But they're already listed right here in this genealogy. Let me just ask you this question. Why do you think Matthew is starting his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? Because he wants us to know Jesus' lineage. That he's in the line of Abraham, Judah, Boaz, and David the king. These guys are all major players in the Old Testament. But more importantly, promises were made to them that will ultimately be fulfilled in the one coming after them. And each of them, in their own right, is a king. With very specific qualities that we'll look at in just a second that are all captured in this one king, the king of kings. So what we're reading here, verses 1 to 17, is the arrival of a king. So all these men are leading up to one man, but not just any man, not just a normal man, but a king. So it's an announcement that the king is here. Let me prove it to you. Look at verse 6. Jesse was the father of David the king. David the father of Solomon. Solomon the king. Then Rehoboam the king, Abiah the king, Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Amos, and Josiah. Those are all kings. All the way to verse 11 and the deportation to Babylon. These are all kings. So Jesus Christ is in the line of kings. And notice how he's at the end of the line. So you could easily say just by the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 that Jesus is the king of kings. But also notice verse 16. 
Jacob is the father of Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. So Jesus is the promised Messiah, the one of whom the entire Old Testament was written, who will bring salvation to the people of God. So this is him. He's here. And there are markers to announce his arrival. And this genealogy is one of those markers. I'll show you that definitively in just a moment. Here's another marker. His unique birth. A virgin birth. One of the biggest markers. One of the biggest signs you could ever imagine. This is B, the pregnancy narrative. Follow along as I read verses 18 to 21. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, a righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So Mary is clearly the mother of Jesus, but while she's engaged to Joseph, and yet before they came together sexually, that's what verse 18 is talking about, she becomes pregnant. But how does she become pregnant? By the Holy Spirit. So Matthew's making the point that Mary's a virgin. She's sexually pure. So she's never been with a man, and therefore there's no other way for her to be pregnant other than a divine miracle. And how did that happen? Well, Luke one thirty-five says the power of the Most High overshadowed her and caused her to be with child. Now, we obviously don't know how all that worked, but we don't know that about any miracle. That's what makes them miraculous. But what we do know is that the father of Jesus is divine, not human. It's God, not Joseph. But how can that be? Well, Joseph was asking the same question, which is why an angel of the Lord assures him. Verse 20, Joseph, son of David. By the way, notice the reminder, Joseph, son of David, the king, which means Jesus, son of David, the king. So Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Second time we're told that. What's the point? I mean, why does Matthew tell us these details? Well, because it's a sign. It's a marker that's been eagerly anticipated for 500 years, that a virgin will give birth to a son. Which, by the way, has got to be one of the greatest signs we could have ever been given that Jesus is the Christ. This is him. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the King of Kings. Because it's one of those signs that tells us he's arrived. He's here. You know, it makes me think of the sign at the Singing Hills Retreat Center. If you're not familiar, that's the place where we've had our annual men's retreat in the past. But let me fill you in on the sign. Because what you need to understand is the Singing Hills Retreat Center is in New Hampshire. 
But it's not in a city in New Hampshire. Instead, it's out in the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. And we typically go up there on a Friday night after work. So it's pitch black when we're driving out in the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. And of course, the the GPS says you've arrived about two miles before you actually get to the driveway. So I would always tell the guys, just just keep driving, just keep going further than you're comfortable, and the sign will be there, I promise. It's obvious, and you can't miss it. Yet, how do the guys drive? Clenching the steering wheel, leaning over, right, staring, eager anticipation, often with snow falling, blinding their eyes, trying to see this sign because it's in the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire. And so you're assuming the sign is going to be small and dark and impossible to see. And you come around this corner. Boom. There it is. You you can see it from hundreds of yards away. Bright lights and a sign that is absolutely obvious. Couldn't possibly miss it. And it feels so good. Why does it feel so good? Because it's so certain. It's so obvious. So impossible to miss. So reassuring. In fact, there's this great joy and relief. Why is that? Because you know for certain that you arrived. Well, the same is true with this pregnancy, this virgin birth. Because it's one of those signs that confirms the arrival of the king. And we know that because it's the fulfillment of prophecy. Just look at what Matthew says, verses 22 to 25. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And what is the prophecy? He tells us, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's amazing. I mean, could you have ever asked for a more impressive sign or a more miraculous sign to confirm that this is the Messiah? And all of this under the heading, Arrival of a King which is so fitting because it's the fulfillment of a prophecy given some 500 years earlier through the prophet Isaiah. If you would, go ahead and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 7. It's on page 572. Isaiah chapter 7. Page 572. As you're turning, let me give you the context. Ahaz is the king of Judah. Ahaz was recently attacked by two enemies. Now, these enemies don't conquer Ahaz or Jerusalem, but they leave Ahaz pretty shaken up. So God sends the prophet Isaiah to strengthen Ahaz to help him to keep trusting in the Lord. The problem, however, is Ahaz is not trusting in the Lord but is working a political deal with Assyria, much larger superpower than the two smaller enemies that are attacking him. Now, this is not a smart move because God has promised to deliver Ahaz if he will simply stand firm in the faith. And to confirm the promise, God offers to give him a sign. In fact, he offers to give him any sign. Follow along as I read Isaiah 7. Starting in verse 10. 
It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heavens. So pick any sign you want to confirm my promise, big or small, normal or miraculous. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds impressive. But the truth is he doesn't want a sign at this point in time because he's already working a deal with Assyria. So the Lord responds, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Now the reason this prophecy is so glorious is that it's given to us by the Lord. So despite Ahaz's unbelief and his refusal to engage with God, taking matters into his own hands, Ahaz is dealt with appropriately. There's an immediate fulfillment. In fact, a virgin or a young girl has a son, and that son is a continual reminder to Ahaz that he will be judged for his unbelief. And he is judged for his unbelief, ironically by Assyria, the political power he was dealing with. But the sign is ultimately a pointer forward to the Lord Jesus. Now, why do I say that? Well, because of Matthew 1, but because the details of the story make it so clear. Starting with the fact that God initiates. He chooses the sign and he provides the sign. What's the purpose of the sign? That God will provide a way of salvation. And remember Isaiah 9, the picture of that child flipped forward. Isaiah 9 I read this this morning for the call to worship. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Here's the description of that child. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. And do you know when this prophecy was given? 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And yet it's fulfilled perfectly in all its details in the virgin birth of Christ. What is Isaiah 9 declaring? That this child, this son, will be a king. But what kind of king will he be? Well, the entire Old Testament fills that in for us. So we've started with this miraculous arrival of a king, but now we're going to back up all the way to creation to see number two, the anticipation of a king. The people of God waiting and watching for thousands of years in eager anticipation, looking at markers, looking at all of these signs all along the way that say not only that one is coming, a child who's a king, but signs and markers that give us a glorious picture of what this king will be like, starting with Adam. So if you would, go ahead and flip back to Genesis chapter 2, right at the beginning of your Bibles. As you're turning, think about the creation narrative, Genesis 1, how God formed the earth and filled it, so he created this glorious environment, this perfect kingdom, if you will, where the pinnacle of his creation, mankind, will rule and reign for all eternity. I mean, that's the environment in which Adam is born. 
So he's born as a king over all creation, where he rules and he reigns over everything that God created. Best example of this is Adam naming the creatures. Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So Adam names every creature, which means Adam has dominion over them. Because naming something means it's yours. It's under your personal authority. You rule over it. I mean, just think about your kids. You and your spouse have them. And because they're yours... You get the great privilege of naming them, which seems appropriate since you'll be responsible for them for the next 20 years of their life, and often many more years than that. But you see my point, don't you? Adam names every creature, which means he has dominion over all creation, which makes him what? Makes him a king. Makes him an established king over all creation where he's expected to rule and reign for all eternity. God even gives him a queen. So after the fall, for God to restore all things, we must be looking for an established king. A second Adam who will rule and reign for all eternity, only this time without sin. But the king will be so much more than that. So we fill in the picture, just think about Abraham. If you would, flip forward to Genesis 14. If you remember, Genesis 14, there are five small kings here paying tribute to four much larger, much more powerful kings. They've been doing so for 12 years, led by King Kedor Laomer. But on the 13th year, they rebel. What does it mean To rebel, it means that they stop paying taxes. Now look at verse 5, Genesis 14, verse 5. In the 14th year, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated, notice, the other kings. Which if you read the story, means they traveled about 800 miles and wiped out everything in their path just to crush these five smaller kings. Which means... According to the story, they're more powerful than any other king in the land. Why do we care about all this? Well, because in addition to conquering everything else, these kings kings take Lot, who's Abraham's nephew. So how does Abraham respond? Well, look at Genesis 14, verse 14. When Abraham heard that his kinsmen, that's Lot, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house. Notice how many trained men does he grab? 318 of them. 
Abraham and these men went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with all his possessions and the women and the people. Now just think about that. Abraham takes 318 men and defeats the greatest kings on the face of the earth. What does that make him? It makes him a conquering king. But if you understand the details, it also makes him a glorious redeemer who rescues his undeserving kinsmen by pursuing him to the ends of the earth just to crush an enemy who on this earth has no equal. Which, of course, is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, the conquering king who defeats the enemies of sin, death, and the devil, all packaged in this little babe born in a lowly manger, Born a child, and yet a king, a conquering king. Next picture, flip forward to Genesis 44, page 38. If you remember Genesis 44, it's where Joseph is testing his brothers to see if they're truly repentant. So he puts Judah in the same exact situation as he was in back in Genesis 37, where he has to choose between his own life and the life of his brother. And if you know the story, then you know back in Genesis 37, he failed horribly selling Joseph into slavery, leaving him as good as dead. But here in Genesis 44, it's a brand new day. Look at Genesis 44, verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy. He's talking about Judah. For your servant Judah became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. What does Judah do? He's offering his life as a sacrifice. So he willingly lays down his own life so that his brother might live. Now you might be saying, yeah, but Judah's not a king here. Well, he's not a king here, but he will be a king. Genesis 49 makes that clear. Remember Jacob's blessing? Genesis 49, you can flip there, verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand, Judah's hand, shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You bow down before kings. That's why verse 10, Genesis 49, verse 10 says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, to to Judah. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. So obviously Judah is a conquering king, crushing the necks of his enemies, and will certainly have an eternal kingdom. The scepter shall not depart from you, Judah, nor the ruler's staff until tribute comes to you, Judah. But he's also a sacrificial king, laying down his own life so that others might have life. Now just think about that for a second. I mean, already, if you just put together what we already know just from the book of Genesis, You have a conquering, all-powerful, crush-your-neck-of-all-your-enemies kind of king who's also a sacrificial king, willing to lay down his own life so that others might have life. 
You have an established, conquering, sacrificial king who is also relational. If you would flip forward to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. It's on page 224. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth 4, page 224. Are you having fun? I hope you're having fun. Isn't this fun? I'm having a great time. Okay, remember the story of, of Boaz, the relative of Ruth. How the whole story is set up in the book of Ruth so that Boaz redeems Ruth. But when we come to chapter 4 we learn that he is not in the primary place to redeem her, meaning he's not first in line. In fact, there's another guy ahead of him in the running. But when push comes to shove, that guy backs out. Why does that guy back out? Well, because the cost is too high. But what does Boaz do? Well, just look at verse 8. Ruth chapter 4, verse 8. So when the Redeemer... That's the other guy, said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he's saying, I can't do it. Cost is too high. Boaz, buy it for yourself. He drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also notice Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought her to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Do you see, he willingly pays the price, the the high cost to redeem Ruth. And, And what's the result? Verse 13, look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her a son. Verse 18. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. David the king. Doesn't this sound just like Matthew chapter one. So the king that is coming needs to be one of us and needs to be a relational king who is like us in all ways and is willing to pay the high price. As you know, Jesus pays the ultimate price of his own life, his body broken, his blood shed. Why? Why did he pay the price? To redeem us as his bride. Isn't it glorious? All the things that were told in the Old Testament of this coming king. Just a couple of more, and then we'll close. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you get to Kings, you're too far. First and 2 Samuel chapter 7, page 259. All right. 2 Samuel 7, look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, God is speaking here. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, 
and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Four things we learn about this coming king. Number one, he's in the line of David. We already knew that from Matthew 1, but it's right here in verse 12 that God will raise up a king from his own body. He will be in the line of David. Number two, the Lord says he will be uh, as a son to me. Verse 14, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Think about how clearly that's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. Luke 1.35, the angel says to Mary, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child born will be called holy. The child will be the Son of God. I will be his father, and he will be to me my son. Number three, God promises this king shall reign for all eternity. To make that Especially clear, it's said twice. Once in verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then again in verse 16, your throne shall be established forever. But we learn one other thing, don't we? Number four, we learn verse 14, that when this son sins, God will discipline him. Now obviously Solomon sinned, and Solomon was disciplined for his sin. But what about Jesus? Jesus was sinless, but he did willingly take our sins upon himself. And when he did, he was punished for it. And who did the punishing? The Father. The Father punishes the Son after he takes our sins upon himself. That's what the cross is all about. So there's no tensions with verse 14, but instead perfect fulfillment in the Lord Jesus. So what did we just learn? We learned this coming king, this established, conquering, sacrificial, relational king will also be the son of David, will be the son of God, and will reign forever and ever in a kingdom that will never end. Isn't that awesome? If we had time, I could walk through each of the prophets and unpack this glorious king in even more detail. Showing you from Isaiah 53 that he'll be a servant king, despised and forsaken, who will suffer, bear our grief, carry our sorrows, pierce through for our transgression, crush for our iniquities. So he will suffer, but he'll also be exalted. Therefore, I'll allot him a portion with the great and divide his booty with the strong. Or we could turn to Ezekiel 37 and you could see how he's a shepherd king. Or we could go to the book of Daniel and you would know that he's a lowly king. Daniel tells us, for God will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And he will give it to who? He will give it to the lowliest of men. Who is that? That's the Lord Jesus. Now, do you know the Bible goes silent? Get to the end of Daniel. Bible goes silent all the way until you get to Jesus. And what does Jesus say? The first recorded words out of his mouth. What does Jesus say when he arrives on the scene? He says the kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe the gospel. Now, can you even imagine how significant that must have been for those waiting in eager anticipation through 500 years of total silence to know that God's eternal kingdom is here because God's established, conquering, sacrificial, relational, and eternal king is here. Who, oh, by the way, is from Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, just another marker, just another sign to identify Jesus as the glorious promised Messiah who truly is the King of Kings. As we transition to application, adoration of a king, the only reasonable question to ask is how should we respond? to this king of kings. And to answer that, just think for a moment about anything in this world that you wait for in eager anticipation. I actually want you to think, what do you wait for in eager anticipation? It's hard to come up with anything, isn't it? Because we don't wait for anything. We buy Christmas presents on our phones and we expect them to arrive the next day. True? Some of you aren't even worried at this point in time. You're like, I got plenty of time to buy presents. December 23rd, I'm still good because <laughs> you expect that if I punch it in and I say, buy now, your assumption is it's on your front door tomorrow morning. We don't wait in eager anticipation for anything. Nonetheless, I want you to think about Christmas. You can't order Christmas earlier. You have to wait for it. So for months we wait in eager anticipation for Christmas. The changing of the seasons tells us it's coming. The buying of presents tells us it's coming. Stan on his front yard around Thanksgiving tells me it's coming. And how do we respond? When it arrives, there is joy in our hearts and there is a smile on our faces that can't be removed, especially when you get exactly what you want and exactly what you need. And when that happens, there is always great joy in our hearts and there is always smiles on our faces. Now just think about Jesus. He's exactly the kind of king you want. He's established and conquering. So he's powerful, but he's also relational and sacrificial, willing to lay down his own life so that you might have life. And he's eternal. Everything in our lives is temporary. You buy a present, you get it for Christmas. What happens by February? If I ask you, what did you get for Christmas? You're like, I can't remember anymore. 
He's not temporary. He's eternal. So when you put your faith in Jesus, God promises that you too will rule and reign with him forever and ever in a kingdom that will never end. But Jesus is not only the king you want. He's the king you need. Remember Matthew 121, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Now that's exactly what every single one of us needs this Christmas, to know for certain that we have truly been forgiven of our sin. And by the way, do you realize that's actually where true joy is found? In the forgiveness of sins. Luke 2.10 makes that clear when the angel of the Lord says to the shepherds, Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Listen to that announcement. Good news of great joy for all the people. What is that? For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior. He shall save you from your sins. Oh, I appeal to you. There is no need to wait in eager anticipation any longer because Christ has come. So repent, believe, and be filled with great joy for the King has come who has conquered sin, death, and the devil through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. I appeal to you. Put your faith in him and experience the forgiveness of sin, the joy that comes with that, and the hope of eternal life. There is no greater gift that you could possibly be given this Christmas season than the glorious gift of salvation. And how about you, dear believer? What does it look like for you to respond to this long-expected king? Well, certainly there's the ongoing joy of knowing your sins are forgiven. But that joy should mature. That joy must mature as you grow in your love for the Lord Jesus. Now, I can't help but think of the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, who traveled 800 miles to find Jesus, who is born king of the Jews. Verse 10 tells us, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. But it didn't stay there, right? right? That joy turned into worship. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And worship looks like something. Offering him their treasures that which was most near and dear to them, they offered to the king of kings gold and frankincense and myrrh. You see, the coming of Christ should bring you great joy, for a Savior has been born who is Christ the Lord. But let that joy move you to wholehearted worship, to offer all that you have your time, your treasures, your talents, and your very life, not just to rejoice in Jesus, but to worship him. I mean, when you truly embrace Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of your life, it looks like counting everything else 
as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing him as the Savior and worshiping him as the king. And king means king. King means king, which means he rules and he reigns over your life, which means everything's on the table. And it should be on the table because he's a gracious and merciful king who only commands what is absolutely best for your life. He's a good king. His commands are for your good. Every single one of his commands. So let's be a people who obey him. Who trust him. Who rest in him. Who follow him. Let us be a people who give generously so that others might know him. Let us be a people who joyfully bow down and worship him with all that we have our time, our treasures, our talents, and our very lives. Let's respond to him with joy in our hearts as Savior and worship him as the King of kings and the Lord of our lives. Allow me to pray. Lord, we are so grateful for your word. What a joy for us to know this morning that Jesus is the King of Kings. That He is Emmanuel, God with us. That He is the Messiah. That He is the one that came to save us from our sins. Lord, I pray that we would delight in Him as Savior. But I pray also that we would worship Him as the King of Kings and the Lord of our lives. Lord, that there would be nothing in our lives that we would withhold from this King. I pray that that all that we have, our time, our treasures, our talents, our very lives, that we would joyfully give of them because He is King. He rules and He reigns over our lives, and we trust him, we love him, we know that what he commands is for our greatest good. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We pray all these things in his precious name. Amen.